You are listening to a sermon from Gateway Foursquare Church in Campbell River, BC. We are so glad that you joined us today and trust that the Lord will speak a word directly to you as you listen. To learn more about Gateway, find out what's happening, or to give a gift online, check us out at www.gatewayfoursquare.ca. You are welcome to join us in person each week at 9 and 11 a.m. Now get ready. Here is this week's message. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. Nice to see you. Uh, always love seeing your faces, and I uh, love being here on Sundays with you guys. Um, just before we start, actually, uh, there's nothing to do with the message, but I, while we were during, in worship, I just had this uh, really experienced the presence of the Lord on me, and it was really wonderful. And um, anyway, I, I actually had a prophetic word that he gave me, so I want to actually want to give that before uh, before we start out. And if you're if you're new, if you're if you're sort of plugging into this church or you're a visitor, and this is kind of a new thing for you, just to give a quick explanation. Uh, when we when we talk about giving words from the front, prophetic words or other kinds of things, uh, what we're what we're referring to there is that God will sometimes give a revelation. Is the word in the book or in the Bible? The word is revelation. If a revelation comes to one who is seating, let the first speaker be silent, let that one speak. And the idea is that God will bring something to mind. It's not equivalent with the Bible. It's not like, we're not saying it's the word of God in the sense of it's equivalent with scripture, but it's something that God will highlight and bring to mind. And it's something that he actually wants to speak specifically. And usually the reason he does that is because it's very specific and pointed for a congregation or for an individual. So I don't know if that's new for you. I just wanted to explain that. The Bible also says we should weigh carefully what is said. So if someone says something and is actually not right, that, you know, we should weigh that. And that person should maybe get up later and say, hey, I'm sorry I gave that. It might, might not have been right. So I just believe in having real humi- humility in that ministry. And so anyway, that was just mostly for if you're new or if you're visiting. Um, the, the scripture that came to my mind this morning is a couple. And I'm just going to share this quick. And again, this has nothing to do with my message at all. But um, it, So listen to this. This is in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 21. And it says, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel? saying, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. And the Lord says, tell them therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are near and the fulfillment of every vision for there shall be no more false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel for I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. But in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And you know what, that Proverbs is, there's people in Israel that receive these prophetic visions from the prophets and these words, and yet it was like year by year, day by day is going by, these things aren't happening, and, there's, and, and they start to say, there's a proverb, people start to say stuff, and then other people start to say some, the same thing, it becomes a proverb, and what they're saying is that day by day goes by, and these visions they come to nothing, this doesn't mean anything for us, but the Lord interjects in that moment, and he says, you know what, what is this proverb that everyone's saying? He's like, I am the Lord, I gave these things, and they will come to fulfillment. And this is for somebody here or maybe multiple of you here who maybe have are in that category where the Lord has spoken something to you or maybe he's promised you something and it's just sometimes you go year by year, day by day, and it's, uh, it's just that, well, does that even matter? It's just not coming true anyway and it, we start to lose hope. But you know what the scripture says in Hebrews 6 that we should imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promises of God. That's actually talking about Abraham who he was 25 years holding on to this promise of God. He was 75 years old when he received this promise. Didn't get fulfilled until he's 100 years old. He said, the Lord told him, you will be the father of many nations. And it was 100 years old. Abraham gives birth to his first son, Isaac, through which that promise was fulfilled. And so there's somebody in this room that needs to know, maybe multiple of you, that there's things God has told you about, talked to you about, things that have stirred hope in the past, that those things maybe have become discouraging because so much time has gone by and it feels like it's not true. Or did I hear it? You need to know this morning that the thing things that God has spoken to you, he will watch over to perform those things that you will no longer say day and day goes by and these visions come to nothing. I feel the Lord wants to say to us that those things which I have promised to you and I've spoken to you, they will come to pass. Put your faith, your hope, your trust me. Let's imitate people like Abraham, imitating those who by faith and patience inherit the promises of God. So I want to pray for you. Actually, would you just stand? I feel we should stand for this and... Um, Here's what I want to ask. You don't have to do this. It's not mandatory. If what I just said is really resonating in your heart, 
and you feel really stirred and you feel like the Lord's talking to you, this is what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm just gonna ask you to put up a hand and then I'm gonna ask some people around you to just lay hands on you while we pray for you specifically. So if that's you, if that word feels like it resonates and that is true of your life and your circumstances, I want you to raise a hand. And if you're standing around some of these people, take a look around you, just lay a hand on their shoulder. Um, shoulders good, arms good. That's, just lay a hand there, and uh, we're just gonna pray, and I'll pray for all of us, but I wanna pray for these specifically that, that, feel, that I feel the Lord's kind of directing this to specifically. So Lord, we wanna lift up the ones who are here this morning, specifically those who are hearing you right now, and they have their hands up. Lord, I'm asking in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would restore in them hope which has been lost or defeated. Restore hope in them right now. It says in Romans 15, may the God of uh, uh, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask you that you would restore hope to these ones, maybe where they've lost hope or maybe hope is waning. Maybe the promises feel far away like they'll never happen. Remind them what you said. Lord, let them again hear your voice and the words of your promises. Stir up faith for great endurance and perseverance to hold fast to those things which God has said and to claim them, to pray for them with a fervency to have hope restored. And I pray for us as a church, for anybody else who's, who's in that category, and for all of us, Lord, that we would be filled with hope in, in joy and peace in believing so that we, so we would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I ask you that we would have a, a faith to hold on to those things which you have said, both in your word and to us personally in times of prayer and journaling. Let us hold fast to these things and be a community that lays hold of the promises of God. So let your spirit come upon every person, even right now, Lord, to restore hope. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right, you can have a seat. Sorry, that was a quick aside, which I really didn't have time to do. This is a lengthy message. But anyway, uh, we're going to continue on. So if you, uh, uh, do we got the first slide? We can, I, I actually did slides. I'm not a visual person at all. I like listen to audiobooks. I'm totally auditory. So I don't even know what to put on a slide. But you know what? We're talking about unity. And so I thought this picture was fitting. <laughs> Daniel and I talked. We're going to order some clothes. We'll all wear the same stuff. We've got, you know, white and black, black pants, white shirts. No, I'm just joking. That's a joke. Um, not so much uniformity, that's what we're looking at. Um, the word, though, is unity. That's, that's what I'd like to uh, talk to you this morning about. And I do kind of want to keep this. I'm going to actually start a timer because I do want to keep this uh, fairly concise. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, as I was praying, I was asking the Lord. I spoke with Daniel, and he asked me if I would preach today. And, and I was praying and asking the Lord, as I always do, what he wanted me to speak on. And I actually had one of those unusual experiences where I woke up in the morning one morning, and the Lord spoke to me. Like, right when I woke up, I just, and I had this word unity that just dropped into my heart, and I just felt the Lord say that I really need you to speak on unity in the body of Christ. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, okay. Um, okay, so I, I'm like, I don't know what I'm gonna say about that yet, but I, so I get up, and I'm having a coffee, and, and I mentioned this to Shauna, and actually Shauna said, oh, that's interesting, same thing. The Lord has put that word in my heart this morning, so uh, even through her. So I really feel that something God has highlighted to me that he wants uh, me to speak about. And uh, here's the thing that, uh, that I want to say. The reason I'm talking about this this morning, I, I want you to be, be clear. This isn't because I've kind of, di we've diagnosed some major problem in our church, and this is sort of a prescription for that. That's, that's not what this is. Actually, I think as a church, we're doing pretty good in the area of unity. I've actually seen myself several expressions of this like really of unity and brotherly love in this church in a really unique way. So I actually want to commend you for that. And I think this is a place where we're doing well. So this message is not an indictment. It's not like, oh, we, you know, we need all some, need some correction on this. I, that's not what this is. But here's what I want to say. Unity in the church is actually something that doesn't exist just because passively, uh, you know, we just go through, like, it actually takes work and effort to preserve it. And I would argue that is one of the primary areas that Satan and the demonic will work in against a church. Like, I bet if I asked this morning, if you could raise your hand, I'm not going to ask you to do it because it would be way too heartbreaking, but if I, if I asked you to raise your hand, how many people have been in a church split or a major faction or division or dissensions or strife within a church, I bet you if you've been in the church for any length of time, most hands in the room would probably go up. I don't think we'll do it, just we'll stay hopeful. For it. But, uh, but anyway, uh, I bet you most of us have experienced, I know I have. And so um, this whole area of unity is something that's really significant for the church. It's an area that 
you know, the enemy focuses on in attack. And it's something that I think we can be vulnerable to. It's, you know, the, it, it, I'm going to talk a little bit more and unpack what, the, what this all means. But I think it's an area that Satan works hard. He works overtime to try and gain entrance that so we can be vulnerable. And like you and I need to stay there to preserve it and to, to keep it. So uh, first scripture, if you, if you want to pull it up, I don't know if the slides, I don't even know, I don't even know how to cue the slides. I never even use them, but whatever the scripture, there you go, First Corinthians 12. Uh, okay, so look at this verse. This is in, uh, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, uh, and, he's, and he's talking about this, this passage where he talks about spiritual gifts, chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians. And in the, in the 12th verse of the first chapter there, chapter 12, uh, he says this, he says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And we'll go to the next slide. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, so th what this is talking about is what happens when you and I experience salvation. We enter in to the body of Christ. And did you notice the, the significance, the emphasis on the, the unity kind of theme here, right? For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is even repetition of the word one. So when we come, it's, Paul is kind of making it clear that when you and I enter in, this is actually about entering in to the body of Christ, becoming a believer. It says that we, we enter into one body. It, it is a unified one body. There's one spirit that we all share. In fact, the whole chapter, he's, he's emphasizing, you know, yes, there are different gifts, but it is the same spirit. It's one spirit. There's a strong theme of unity that he talks about in this chapter. And there's an interesting verse also in Galatians. Um, I'm just gonna look here if I have that in my notes. Um, yeah, so listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. This is chapter three, verse 28. It's not on the slide, so I apologize for that. Um, but he says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting, if you look at those things, you could probably add a few more things to that list. There's neither rich nor poor. Uh, you could probably add there's neither young nor old. Like there, it's, What he's saying is, you know, these things that are delineation lines in society, these things that divide, where you have, you know, male and women, you have different social classes, where you have different cultures, these delineating lines. And what he's saying is when you actually enter into the kingdom, those lines kind of go away. We actually become truly one with one another, where we're no longer divided by these delineations, uh, these lines of social class. You know, you get have a billionaire guy and a poor guy who are both believers in church and they're unified in the same spirit. Uh, and, and you can have, you know, regardless of social class, regardless of culture, I mean, you can go, I remember I went to Nepal in 2018 and uh, we went there and, and you know, the, we were with a pastor who is uh, the pastor of the church in Nepal in Kathmandu and stayed at his house. And in the morning, you know, we had these devotional times. We sat around his table and they, we sang hymns in Nepalese. So I kind of faked it, but then they did a, a, the odd verse in English so I could sing along. And we would do a little Bible study out of the Psalms. And I was like, this is incredible. I'm in a totally different culture in a totally different nation, in a different language, and yet here we are enjoying and agreeing on the same principles of truth and the same love for Jesus and the same spirit is present here at this table that was at church when I was there last week in my hometown. It's just remarkable that you can go to any culture or any place and you can immediately enter into this oneness and this unity with the body of Christ. So I'd like to argue this. Unity is actually the foundation of the church and it's the starting place. Did you know that we actually start we start off unified in unity. When you enter the body, you start becoming one with that body and in the one spirit. And so unity is the default position of the church in Christ. Would you agree with me so far? Okay. Hope I'm not losing anybody. So we start in unity. Um, however, you know, as we read, there's, uh, actually, no, I'm gonna point this out first. There's... Um, I want to look at an example where we see this. In the early church, there's a profound example of unity. And so I have this slide. I think it's the next. Oh, we're back to that one. Okay. Um, hmm. I'm not sure how to tell you which slide. It's the one that's Acts chapter 4, verse 32. If you have a Bible, just flip open to Acts chapter 4. We're going to verse 32 and verse 33.
So this is a description of the early church. You know, we have uh, Peter, chapter two, we have his sermon, 3,000 get saved. They're together, they're in the temple, they're worshiping, they're giving, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and all that. And then look at this description that you get of those early believers just a couple of chapters into the existence of the church. The church really was formulated in the New Testament sense at Acts 2, Pentecost. Um, and then uh, look, at, look at this description. Just a couple of chapters later, it says in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And look at this verse, great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. Look at the, you know, when you consider the, what, what invited that grace, look at the descriptor. It's that they're together, they're one in heart and mind and spirit. They have all things in common. There's no needs among them. Like, so this is, there's a rich sense of community. You know, they're not isolated and, you know, that guy lives over there and that guy lives over there and they're not really ever sharing life. But there's a sense of this integration of their lives that they're sharing with one another. They're meeting needs with one another. They're getting together in homes. And what you get is that they're together and there's a oneness of heart and mind. And then it says there's great power with the apostles preaching the gospel. But it says of all of them, there was great grace upon them all. So I'd like to present to you and propose to you that unity of the believers is something that profoundly invites the grace of God. I'm gonna show you that in somewhere else. Look at Psalm 133. David writes this psalm, he says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Next slide. Running down on the collar of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. So when believers are dwelling together in unity, in oneness, it's, there's an invited blessing of God on that. The Spirit of God grants there to be a unique grace, a unique blessing in the midst of that. Well, as you can imagine, you know, we looked at Acts 4. Well, as the church progresses a few years, um, we get into actually an example of where we see divisions showing up in the church. So you're gonna look at this next passage here. And I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do for the rest of the message is spend a little bit of time in the early chapter one and three of 1 Corinthians. And then we're gonna go to Ephesians four and look at Paul's exhortation in this. Uh, so if you have a Bible, let's flip open to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter one. So quick background here first is that uh, this letter to the Corinthians written between 53 and 55 AD. So this would be, I think it was Paul's second missionary journey. He's in Ephesus. This is when the first letter uh, to the Corinthians was written. And in fact, there's actually four letters and only two of them survive. There's two that we don't know whatever happened to them. Uh, but he wrote this, this first letter in AD 50, between 53 and 55 when he was in Ephesus. And it was in AD 49 to 51 where Paul was actually in Corinth. And if you read in Acts chapter 18, it actually says that he stayed and he remained among the Corinthians for a period of a year and a half. And he established the church there. So Paul is actually the founder of this church and he remained with them for about a year and a half. After that, later on, somebody like Apollos and others, Apollos was a guy who traveled there and he actually became one of the teachers in Corinth. And so at the time this letter's written, the church has probably been established for about a few years, maybe five years or so. And so that, that's kind of when Paul writes this, just to give a little bit of a backdrop. And so here's the thing that's interesting about, two things I wanna point out with this letter. Uh, firstly is that um, this, in this letter, we get some of the, the strongest uh, rebuke of Paul to a church. In fact, if you look at the structure of the letter and you go through it, it's basically a series of problems, of sins, of issues that the church is going through or immaturity that Paul is addressing systematically through the letter, which includes things like sexual immorality from chapter five. Um, they're suing one another. They're having lawsuits and Paul rebukes them for that in chapter six. Um, there's issues around marriage and betrothal. There's issues around uh, food sacrifice to idols and causing your brother to stumble in chapter eight. There's issues around taking communion, the Lord's Supper, which he talks about in chapter 11. And then there's this whole issues around the use of spiritual gifts in orderly worship. And that's chapters 12, 13, and 14. So throughout the letter, he's kind of pointing out a lot of areas where there's some unhealth and immaturity and he's bringing correction to the Corinthians. But look at the descriptor it says in chapter one. Go back to chapter one for a second. 
And then look what Paul says in in verse four. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift, that is spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's fascinating to me about that is that Paul opens it up praying for them and giving a descriptor of the Corinthians that they are truly excelling in the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit is present and working. And, and you know, as you can see later on in some of the other chapters, there's people speaking in tongues, there's prophecy, there's gifts of healings and working of miracles. I mean, there's no shortage of these the power and the working and presence of God in their midst. And yet, they are stumbling in so many areas. So I want to point that out because, you know, just because you have things such as spiritual gifts functioning in your community, that is not a sign of spiritual maturity. That's a sign that the Spirit is present with you and He's working and moving. But don't mistake that if, if there's prophetic words, if there's tongues or the presence of God, that's not necessarily an indication of spiritual maturity, which some groups would wrongly conclude. You know, they would say, oh, the Spirit's really here, so what we do and how we do it must be right. Well, here we get an example of a church that's really excelling in these things, and yet Paul comes to them with a pretty stern rebuke. So let's look at this. Uh, Verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. So here's the, the first of the Paul's kind of indictments to this church, or the you know, areas where he points out where there's spiritual immaturity, where there's sin. And you know, of all the ones I listed, do you notice this is the first, and I would argue the most significant one that he points out in this church? And so what's, the, what's going on here? So the church is actually experiencing these things that are like divisions, dissensions, and it's, and it's part, in part because there's different factions within the church that are gathering around different leaders. So you have, you know, the group that's like probably when Paul was there for the first half, year and a half, and, you know, he baptized some of them, uh, the, you know, and then they, they, he, they, they sat under his teaching. And so they kind of, well, we're followers of Paul. And then maybe Apollos came a few year, years later, and then there was some that rallied around him. And what you get is this church, it gets in these factions that is putting all of the emphasis on these different leaders, and it's actually creating division. So, I mean, it's not bad to, to appreciate a leader uh, and to uh, to value them, but where the issue is, is there's actually a root of pride that is written into the, the verses here. You know, because pride is this is the idea of this elitism. Oh, we're better than them because we have had we were here first when Paul was here. And you know, oh, there you only have Apollos and, and Apollos is like, well, Paulus is Paulus people are like, well, he was the more anointed teacher, so we were a little bit more better instructed. It, it's this it's just pride, it's this elitism that is dividing the church. Not unlike the original sin of the fall, which really is centered around pride. If you look at the fall, the core root issue of the fall is pride. In fact, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, those are two passages that are the prophets are writing these things about earthly kings, but there's this dual layered meaning where they're actually giving a glimpse into the fall of Satan himself, who says he was a guardian cherub in the guardian. He said, I will become like the most high. He was exalted in his pride and therefore he was cast out. Even, the, even when Eve was tempted, uh, to eat, the, the serpent said, "You know, do you, don't can't you see that if you do this, he doesn't want you to do this. If you eat the fruit, because then he knows you'll be like him." And her temptation was, "Oh, she thought the fruit looks good, and it was good for obtaining knowledge to become like God." It was a pride was at the heart of the fall, and so here we have the same thing showing up where there's this pride and there's this elitism that has crept into the church, where they're divided and they're being they're being divided uh, around these different leaders. So I want to look at these three things that Paul appeals for in the beginning. Back in verse 10, uh, I just want to unpack this for a second here. It says, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I was like, hang on a second, Lord, what do you mean that we all agree? Like, have you looked at the church recently? <laughs> like, none of us agree. If you look worldwide, there's like that denomination over there, and they believe in this, and we over here believe in that, and some people believe in tongues, and some people don't believe in tongues, and some people are, are uh, pr- uh, pr- uh, partial preterists. They believe the end-time events of prophecy have already been fulfilled. Some people are historic premillennialists who believe in a post, <laughs> post-tribulation rapture. Some are historic premillennialists who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Some people are all millennials. Like, Lord, did you notice that we don't agree on a lot of things? How is it that you could say here that Paul is exhorting the church that I want you to agree? Hmm. So here's what, here's what I'm going to propose. First of all, helpful if you look in the language, what it actually says, if you look at the language, it means literally that you all speak the same things, that you all confess and admit or speak. That's actually what the Greek words mean. Now, that's interesting because, you know, I think... Uh, that having a similarity in the things that we speak and say regarding to what we believe is actually helpful in promoting unity and can actually cause division, people speaking in disagreement and, and things. Now, here's what I'd like to propose, because I think it doesn't mean that we're all going to perfectly agree. Because here's the thing, this is not a cult. You know, we're not following like Reverend Moon and the Moonies from the, the 50s where we all have weddings at the same time, we all wear the same clothes, um, even though my Lego picture jokingly alluded to that. But, you know, we're, we're not cult members, we're not, the idea is we all just brainwash ourselves who think the same, there's, you know, there's some value in the church that there's different you know, expressions of thought. And there really is good theologians who come to different conclusions on certain verses. You know, and I've read some where it's like, wow, you read, you know, Wayne Grudem over here, and then you read like John MacArthur or, or someone like that over there, and like, they kind of agree, but they both got good points. You're like, hmm, interesting. I'm, I'm not really sure which of those is true. So here's the thing. We're not going to perfectly agree on everything, but I'd argue that the agreement has to do with the core essential uh, values of the faith and the doctrinal elements of the faith, that on those things, there's a necessity that we agree. Because if you don't believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected, then you, the, the, Paul says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You know, at some point, we're no longer a New Testament church if we're divided on certain core elemental truths. But I think what unifies us is that we're all the same spirit of truth, and there's these core doctrinal elements that we actually all speak, we all confess, we all agree. You know, a lot of us can read the Apostles' Creed, and we'll, we'll read that together in agreement, because those are the core doctrinal elements of the faith. So, I just want to throw that out there. I think there's some freedom of thought. There's some ideas where we're going to differ on them, but those, I would argue, are the sort of minor points. And on the major points, the core doctrines, that's where Paul's saying that you all agree that you'd be in harmony and one in your mind in those core doctrines. Um, He says this. He says that there be no uh, divisions among you, that you all agree there be no divisions among you. now, the interesting word, thing about the word uh, divisions is it's actually the word, um, where is it here? I have it written down. Sorry, I don't usually use notes. I usually rely on my memory. <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to rely on my memory because I can't find it. But it's the word schismata. It's the idea, it's where we get the word schism. And you know what's really fascinating? The word means actually to rent or to tear. It's actually used when, when Jesus talks about the, the parable when he says, you know, no one takes an old garment and sews a new patch. When he does, the patch will shrink and it will tear. It's the same word. It speaks of ripping or tearing a garment. So that's interesting when you consider divisions. Let there be no divisions. Nothing in your community that rips and tears at the fabric of community in Christ. But he says, uh, but that you be united in the same mind. Now, that word for united is very interesting. Uh, and, and what's interesting about it is that it's the word, it's the root word, katartizo, which it means to complete or make complete, to make perfect, but it also means to mend or to repair. So in Mark 1, I think it's 110 or 119, Mark 119, that's where James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it says they're there in the fishing net with, or fishing boat with their, their father. Jesus comes, he calls them, and it says they were mending their nets. It's actually the same exact word as talked about when Paul says, be united, be mended, be repaired, be restored. So, you know, divisions, if you think of it as this tearing apart, you get this word, be united, means a bit of like a sewing and a stitching and a knitting back together. So he says, be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Again, getting back to the idea of agreeing and having the same mind when it comes to the core doctrines of the faith. 
And judgment just basically means, you know, the decisions that you make and how you, how you work out those things. Um, and then he says, um, so flip over to chapter three. I just want to look at one other aspect of Paul's rebuke, which shows up two chapters later. So Paul says this. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh and as infants in Christ. Now, it's really fascinating. I, I kind of learned this this week that, um, you know, when you look at this terminology, this imagery of infants or, or being babes in Christ, sometimes some translations, it's actually never used to describe someone as a brand new believer. You know, we all think that someone just first gets saved. Well, they're like an infant in Christ. They're just kind of new. Did you actually know that when it's used, it's typically used in a negative sense as a rebuke to, to refer to spiritual immaturity? Now, conversely, maturity in Christ is often referred to as like being mature. Like in Ephesians, when it talks about being, being to attain to a mature manhood or the fullness of the stature of Christ. So when, it, when Paul is saying that you, you're spiritual, he's saying, for, he's saying you're, you're, sorry, you're, of, you're not spiritual. I cannot address you as spiritual, but I address you as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, he's saying, you know, you guys, this whole area where you've got these divisions and these dissensions, this is all from the flesh. You know, the, the root word of the flesh there, sarks, it means the, the physical flesh, but as a dual meaning, it also means like the sinful nature. Uh, you know, the, the byproducts of being, which I think Daniel's gonna talk about at length next week, we get to Romans 3. That's kind of the most profound passage. It tells you how far you've fallen and how sinful we are apart from Christ. Uh, and that's true of everybody in the world. Well, the word there, flesh, sarks, it refers to operating out of the natural mind. And Paul says, um, he says later, you know, that you're, are you not behaving in just a merely human way? It's just this naturalistic flesh. Like they're oriented, and the, the idea is that you're controlled by the passions or, the, or the, the, um, uh, the temptations of the flesh more than being controlled by the spirit. So to be spiritually immature is to be carnal, to be of the flesh. And, to be, and so Paul's, Paul's saying that I fed you with milk. I couldn't give you solid food for you're not ready for it. And you're now not ready because you're still of the flesh. And again, describing that this is because there's jealousy and strife among you. And uh, that when you act in the flesh, you're acting out of a human way. For one says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Well, so here's what Paul says. I, I love how Paul addresses this. He then says, well, what, what then is Apollos? This is verse five of chapter three. He says, what is Paul? They, they are servants through whom you believed. So Paul begins to refer to himself and Apollo, some of these people who have been elevated in their midst and people are rallying around him. But he says, you know, actually, guys, remember, we're servants. Like the word servant, as we learned earlier, the word doulos, you know, it's actually used to mean like a servant in a house or it's a pretty humble, low position when you talk about serving and servants, sometimes used to refer to bond servants as well, which are essentially slaves. Uh, so Paul says, we're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then he says this, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And I think what he's doing here is he's putting a correct perspective that on, on the role that he played and the role that Apollos played is that we're servants. And by the way, guys, the, the role we played was very simple. I mean, I, I took a seed, I put it in the ground. You know, maybe Apollos came by with a watering can, dumped some water in it, but God did the intricacies of the seed breaking open and germinating roots and causing growth. Like, we didn't do any of that. That's all God's work. I think Paul is diminishing his role as the apostle and Apollos to say we're just servants. We do these simple things according to the grace of God, and we have different roles. But ultimately, the, the, what you should be attributing all of that, that, that work to and the growth to is to God. You know, I was thinking about this. You know, we used to do homeschooling and stuff. You get the kids with those. I mean, do this. We get the little egg cartons and you put the, I don't know, seeds in it and you get stuff that grows in the kids. Like, whoa, that's cool. Well, my two-year-old at the time could take a little seed and walk over and push it in the dirt. And then the other one, who is four, could come by with a cup of water and splash it on there. It's like, oh, no, that's too much. Like, put some more dirt in there, sop it up a bit, right? Even two-year-olds could do like the plant, the seed, and the watering. But when you actually consider, if you know, for thousand, you can have a seed that sits on a shelf for a thousand years. You take it, and all of a sudden, you put it in some dirt and water. Somehow, it cracks open and just knows to grow. Like scientists cannot figure out how seeds work. Well, the decision process they have to when they're going to do their thing. Like nobody, it's a total mystery how seeds work, and we can't even figure it out. There's such complexity when life comes from the thing. So if you consider the planting part and the watering part, it's extremely minimal compared to the miracle of growth that's taking place. So Paul is pointing them to God, attributing to God the, 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 
the work of growth and maturity and things that have happened. Uh, so yeah, I just want to point that out. So here in these two passages, Paul is, is just bringing this rebuke uh, to the Corinthians. Well, I think there's, so, so here, I think it's a warning. I think we read these passages and we read that, you know, we, you and I actually need to be really careful that we don't start doing things that causes divisions and factions and that we don't start operating with one another out of our flesh, out of pride, out of offense towards other people. You know, Paul, so there's a real rebuke here to the Corinthian church, and I think that you and I need to read this soberly and, say, and ask ourselves, Lord, is there anything that I'm doing to rip at the fabric of our community? Is there anything that I'm doing that is actually tearing apart community that you actually want to bind and knit back together, mend the nets, so to speak? So this is, this is something that you and I need to be very sober-minded and consider. But I want to look at this transition now to Ephesians. Now, this is an amazing passage where Paul gives an incredible exhortation. I'm just going to spend the last few minutes in Ephesians, and then we're going to transition. So Ephesians 4, I love the book of Ephesians, by the way. Um, and, and Ephesians 4 is interesting because it's a, it's a pivot point in the book. So for the first three chapters, Paul has given some of the richest verses on what Christ has done for us. You know, all of chapter one talks about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be blameless and holy. It says that he predestined us for adoption through his son. It says he's lavished his grace on us. We've received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It says we received the Holy Spirit as a deposit for the guarantee for the inheritance that we're going to receive. And, and then in chapter two, you get into, you know, we're in the world and following the power of the prince of the air by nature children of wrath but God was rich in mercy rescuing us out of that kingdom of darkness he gave us new life he gave us grace that we're saved not by any of our works so that none of us can boast so this is this is what Paul's talking about for the first three chapters of Ephesians and then we get to chapter four this is noticeable transition there's a pivot point and chapter four is basically now in view of all these things which God the incredible work which God has accomplished in your life and in my life through the cross how then do we work this out in community that's essentially what chapter four is sorry I did kind of race through that I apologize but I'm just trying to be as concise as I can here on this but um chapter four so look at this he says I therefore a prisoner for the Lord so again, the word therefore is an appeal to the first three chapters. We go and read them, the, the, all the incredible picture of what Christ has accomplished and who we are in Christ. He says, so in light of that, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, which by the way, Paul was actually in prison when he wrote this, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in view of what Christ has accomplished in your and my life, Paul is firstly urging urging them to live a life. To, to walk means basically that's the word in the, is, means the conduct of your life. This is the day-to-day -day grind. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So let's point out here first that Paul, by the way, the word urge is kind of a strong term. In fact, sometimes it's translated to beg. Like Paul begging pleading, beseeching the believers that they would do this. You know, for Paul, I love one guy. I listened to one guy. He said, you know, when it came to the gospel, it wasn't enough for Paul just to go up to someone and say, you know, tell them once and then walk away and just be, oh, well, it's up to the Lord. Like Paul pleaded and he begged and he beseeched, like he, you know, be reconciled to God, you know, things like that. In fact, it's the same word is used in Acts 26, verse three, when he's talking to King Agrippa. And Paul says, I beg that you would listen to me. And he goes on and tells King Agrippa the gospel. And King Agrippa's like, you would preach the gospel to me or try to get me saved or something at the end. It's, it's just interesting that Paul, he even, even when it came to preaching the gospel, he didn't just find it, he wasn't satisfied just to tell someone, and let, and, well, it's up to the Lord now, I'm, I'm a Calvinist or gonna be saved or not anyway, so it doesn't matter to me. Um, but he said, he actually labored, he did everything that he could do that somebody would listen and, and be reconciled to God. And so in a similar type of way, he's responding to the church, urging urging us to consider what Christ has done for us. No, I'm urging you to consider how this will impact your walk. And he says, walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy, axios in the Greek, this is very interesting. It's, it means, it has the idea of being balanced. 
right? So it's, it's the idea of something that would be suitable or fitting or, or balanced to something else. Like I, I was trying to think of an example. I thought of this great example. How many of you ever heard of, you know, in like a, you know, a, a, a boxing match or something and, you know, you have a really championship boxer. Well, then if the other opponent puts up a pretty good equal fight, would you call them a worthy opponent, right? It's like somebody that is the same, it's balanced, as opposed to, you know, if it's somebody who's not a worthy opponent and is like, oh, this is an easy fight. You win in 10 seconds. And, you know, the guy's like, well, is there no worthy opponent for me, like my ability? The idea of worthy be, means to respond in a way that is balanced to the first thing. So he says, consider all of what Christ has done for you. Now live in a, a life worthy, balanced, like have a suitable response to this incredible grace of God that's been expressed over your life. He says, uh, in a manner worthy to which you've been called, again, called there, I think he's appealing to some of what he says in chapter one about, you know, we're predestined for adoption, we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And he says, now he gives some descriptors of what this should actually look like practically. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul's exhortation is in view, again, I know I'm being repetitive, I'm doing that on purpose, uh, but in view of what Christ has accomplished for you and, and the, ex, the extravagant grace that he's shown to you, live in response in a way that would balance, it's worthy of that, and do that practically with all humility. By the way, humility, this is another thing I learned this week, that word in the Greek here does not appear in classical Greek literature anywhere else. Very interesting, the Greeks did not have a word for humility. It was not a value. It was not an attribute that the, you know, the Greek empire valued. They actually didn't have a word for it. This is a word that's essentially coined by Christians and used in scripture, which I found that really fascinating. And the word is actually this combination of two different Greek words. It basically means to think of oneself lowly, to think lowly of yourself. Now, that doesn't mean like in a, uh, you know, self-deprecating, you know, speaking down again. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, it's kind of similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, 3, when he says, uh, you know, that each one should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment and in accordance with the measure of grace, which Christ has assigned. He's saying that, you know, we should not think more highly of ourselves or come with this haughty, prideful attitude, but we should actually think lowly of ourselves, which then, you know what that translates to? It translates to thinking more highly of your brother than you. It, it translates to getting low and preferring your brother over yourself, thinking more highly of them. That's what humility looks like. Jesus was expressed the ultimate humility. I talked about that several weeks ago in one of the messages I did about Philippians 2, when Jesus made this great condescension from heaven and became a human being, you know, became, taking the nature of a servant, emptying himself, like this great expression of humility from Jesus that we were to, actually says in Philippians, or Philippians that we we're to imitate that. So we, we need to be humble with one another because, first of all, God gives grace to the, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? And it says, in gentleness and patience. Um, it, how, so what does gentleness mean? Well, gentleness is the idea of not being violent, not being forceful. It's the idea of actually the words used to describe sometimes a gentle breeze or to be, um, you know, to be at sort of rest or not very forceful or kind of like, um, trying to lose the words. Anyway, the, the idea is it's, it's the same word for meekness and it's used of Jesus. Like Jesus in, I think it's in uh, uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, it says, you know, come to me for I am lowly or I'm gentle and lowly of spirit. Actually refers to Jesus was gentle and lowly of spirit. And, and it's actually a word that used to be used when they would have a colt, like this wild colt, and they'd finally break the colt to train it for riding. The word they would use is they would refer to it as being meek. It's now, it's, and it has this idea of it's got this incredibly tame power that's under control is actually what the word means. Because here's what it's not. It's not talking about weakness or it's not talking about cowardice. I mean, you get moments where Jesus, who is meek and lowly, he goes into the temple and he overthrows the money exchanger's tables with a whip. You know, and he's, so there's times where Jesus does some incredibly bold things or brings some rebuke to the Pharisees. It's not saying that he was a coward or he lacked boldness or strength. It's not an absence of these things, but it's the idea of having power under control and being gentle and being 
um, you know, that sort of thing with one another. Uh, patience, again, it's, and bearing with one another in love. This is the idea of, of it choosing to stay, bearing with something is choosing to stay and to maintain love and to do that with patience, even though maybe you get frustrated or maybe you feel like you lose your temper or lose your patience. But that's like the willful choice that we continue in love relationships and that we persevere and you have endurance, that you're patient, slow to anger. So these are things that Paul is describing as these practical characteristics that that contribute to a culture of unity and oneness. And did you notice that those all appear on a certain list in Galatians 5? It's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? So these are things that are characteristics that are produced in us by the the Holy Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is uh, in all love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So these are things that the Spirit himself produces in us that we bear the fruit of the Spirit. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there we have this idea. I mentioned it earlier, but we're not talking about creating unity. Did you know that you can do nothing to make unity happen? I can do nothing to make unity happen. Unity's already there because it, it, it's, we're all, like I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 12, we're all joined in one body and we have one spirit and there's neither Jew nor Greek or male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus. Like I said, that's the starting place. Our job is actually to maintain it. Maintain the spirit of unity through the bond of peace, to live in peace with one another to love one another, to be humble with one another, to be gentle with one another, to bear with one another in love. This is Paul's exhortation. And then he says here, similar to um, what I read earlier, he said, because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and is in all. And so, like I said, just the unity is something that God does. In fact, Jesus prayed for this. I, I didn't really get there. I don't have time to go there. But John 17, uh, if you want to write down the verses, John 17, chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 11, and then verses 20 to 23, it's actually a core theme to Jesus' prayer. And he says, Father, make them one as you and I are one. Well, that's interesting. As Jesus is one with the Father, he instructs us to be one in him and together. You know, how, are, how, are, how is Jesus and the Father one? Well, they're equal in their substance, in, in, in their nature, in their essence, right? In the same way, we're, Jesus is central to his prayers that we would be one. And he actually says, then the world will know that I've been sent by how you love one another and how and this oneness in that uh, past verse 23, I think. Anyway, I didn't really get a chance to get into that, but go check that out. Um, the last thing I want to say, I want to close with this, and then we're going to transition. And it's just a little bit later in this chapter. This is very fascinating. But it says, so, so we get this instruct, practical instructions about how to live with one another, the kinds of qualities, these fruits of the Spirit that we need to uh, cultivate so that we preserve and protect unity in our midst and we keep together in the bond of peace. And then he says, look at this, this is very fascinating. It says, and he gave, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then verse 13, until... If you're one of those people that like circling stuff and underlining stuff, that word until is a really significant word. He's saying these ministries, these different roles are to continue to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until, listen, look at the first thing that said, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to mature manhood. Again, that is to say unity is a characteristic of the perfected, matured church. It's something that Christ gave gifts to the church, these, these roles that would continue in ministry until we get there. Jesus is passionate about bringing you and I to a place of mature manhood, attaining to the full measure and stature of Christ, being unified in the faith. That's what maturity and that's what perfection in the church actually is going to look like. So here's what I want to do. I just want to challenge you for a moment. And, here's, and this isn't going to be like a come forward thing. We're going to transition to communion in, in just a second. But I want you to think about something. And that is, honestly, go before the Lord and say, Jesus, is there anything in my life that is tearing community? Is there anything that is causing any kind of division or strife? And if it is, deal with me in that area. And then to pray for some of these things out of Ephesians 4. Lord, give me humility. Give me patience. 
You know, let me bear with my brothers in love, even the ones I find frustrating or I disagree with them, or like, and help me to be in agreement and unity. Like, I think it's incumbent on us to actually do the work of this. You know, it would grieve my heart just if someone, listen to this for, how long has it been, 40 minutes? Sorry, I wanted to do 35, but I went 40. Um, but it would grieve me if someone listened to this for 40 minutes and went away and just had no idea what we even talked about and just is gone. You know, James says, it's like someone looking in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. It's, you know, be, but, but we actually have to take the word of God and put it into practice. We need to actually do this. My exhortation to you is don't just listen to this message and go home and look at the mirror and forget what you look like. My exhortation to you is like do the hard work of unity. Be unoffendable. If someone assaults you, just to forgive them. Forgive them and choose not to be unoffendable. You know, walk with humility. If someone's, you know, maybe, maybe you, want, you're, you feel like you should lead worship more and someone else is like, just be humble and trust that the Lord is gonna put you in the right place at the right time and not trying to, you know, think of yourself first and pushing your, your own agenda. Like, I mean, was, like, there's some really practical things that I think we need to do. And again, I'm not, this isn't an indictment. I don't think we're failing in this, but I'm saying let's do this now so we don't end up there. Let's, let's preserve and value unity that you and I would be a church that is unified and one in Christ that the world may know Jesus has come. Amen? Well, what we're going to do here, I'm going to invite uh, the worship team back up. I'm going to invite uh, the ushers to come forward. Uh, and we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to transition to communion. And I just want to explain how this is going to work. And then I'm going to read a few verses and lead us through it. So we're going to have ushers at, at this aisle over here. And then we're going to have some ushers over here. And just uh, we're going to have the worship team play a song. And just as you are ready, what I want you to do is come up to the front here and you will be served a little cup and a piece of bread. And then don't take it, but I want you to take that back to your seat. And just one at a time, as you're ready, just come up and just take some of the elements, take them back to your seat. And then I'll lead us so that we all go through it together. So let me, uh, let me close the message in prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll transition and invite you to come forward. Well, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for this church. Lord, I love these people. I love them, and Lord, I see your love in them. Lord, I've seen so many of them just extend, for, I mean, I've, not to say details, but I have seen people that like, go to people and forgive them and just amazing reconciliation and humility. And I've just seen some wonderful expressions of unity, of love in this church. And Lord, I'm so thankful that because none of us can claim uh, uh, that any of those things are our own doing, but that's the spirit of God in us, producing the fruit of the spirit in us and preserving unity in us. Lord, I pray that you continue to do this, that we would be a church that is truly one in faith, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. Lord, that we would be united as the bride of Christ, mature and unified, and you would work in us to do the hard work of relationship and love and humility and fruits of the Spirit so that we preserve this wonderful unity. So Lord, make us one that the world will know that you have been sent. So we thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. We trust that the Lord has something great in store for you. Do you have a question or a prayer request? Send an email to info at gatewayfoursquare.ca or find us on Facebook at GatewayCR. Don't forget we gather each Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. at 403 Fifth Avenue here in beautiful Campbell River. Have a great day.